Support for today's show comes from Fallout 76. Bethesda Game Studios, the award-winning creators of Skyrim and Fallout 4, welcome you to Fallout 76, the online prequel where every surviving human is a real person, work together or not, to survive. Fallout 76 will be available worldwide on Wednesday, November 14th. Pre-order now at participating retailers and play the beta, Games Play Best, on Xbox One. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name's Alex Schmidt, and there's no time for fun, fun, fun intros because you need to vote if you live in the United States. This episode drops November 5th. There is a major election November 6th of 2018. That is Tuesday. That is probably tomorrow, if you hear this right when it comes out. And and we're going to footnote all kinds of resources for, you know, how to find your polling station, how to get there, and so on. Uh, I hope you have a plan if you are an eligible voter and want to. We are at a turning point. A lot of people have said that, not just me. And I think people are aware of it. Some other people don't want you to be aware of it, but it's a thing that's going on. And in the spirit of that, I thought, why don't we look at one of the most important turning points in American history and world history that just not a lot of people know about? You might have heard of the Spanish-American War if you have had a history class, uh, but it kind of formatted the country we're in. And we're going to get into how and why in a lot of different ways. There's a ton here And I think it's really, really fascinating and really worth having on your mind. It is also a war that we still live with today, and I hope you'll be as thoughtful about it as you are about where we go next from this election and future ones. So let's get you to it. Please sit back or sit in a fashion or shape or just just vote is the point. Either way, enjoy this episode of The Cracked Podcast with journalist, teacher, and author of The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and The Birth of American Empire, Stephen Kinzer. One more time, that is the true flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the birth of American empire. Stephen Kinzer, he was a longtime New York Times foreign correspondent. He's been to 50 countries on five continents. He's an author of many, many books about everything from modern Turkey to the 1950s CIA. And we really appreciate him taking time out of uh, his work at Brown University. Hey, that's an excellent college. Yes, it is. He's very impressive. It was great to have him. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I am very excited that you've written such a wonderful book about the Spanish-American War. As you've kind of gone around, I assume gone around uh, uh, the area or the country, uh, letting people know about it, what do you find people's familiarity level is with this conflict? First of all, the Spanish-American War uh, has been largely forgotten unless you're a high school history student, and then you only remember it for about a week until the exam comes, and then you never have to think about it again. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I find intriguing about the Spanish-American War is the name. So we in the United States came up with that name. Uh, We didn't fight uh, in Spain. The whole war was about taking over Cuba, and later it was about taking over the Philippines. But we didn't want to call it that. We didn't want to call it the U.S.-Cuban War because that would suggest that we were attempting to do what we were, in fact, attempting to do, which is take over Cuba. Uh, (laughs) We don't even like the word Philippine War. 
Spanish-American War has a nice ring to it from our perspective. It makes it seem like we were fighting a European power uh-huh. with the goal of liberating the colonists who were being oppressed by that power. So <laughs> the name itself is very misleading. It should be called the U.S.-Cuban-Philippine War, so we'd have an idea of where we were fighting and what the purpose was. Well, I even in my... I feel relatively progressive school when I was learning about the war. They made sure that we didn't call uh, one of the biggest things in the aftermath. We were told not to call it the Philippine insurrection. It was the Philippine-American War, and we were supposed to be aware that that was what that was. But the war itself, I didn't even realize we're framing it uh, in sort of a way where it feels like it's an even boxing match. Yeah, we like to think that we were the uh, rising power. Spain was the setting power. The great misconception we had is that people who rebelled against the idea of being a colony of Spain would also not want to be a colony of any other country. We convinced ourselves that they hated colonialism because colonialism came from Spain. If it would come from the United States, their view (laughs) would be completely different. They would love to be colonies of the United States. And when it turned out, as we learned in both Cuba and the Philippines, that people who were fighting against one colonizer would also fight against another colonizer, and they actually were not just against one country colonizing them, they were against being colonized in general. This was a great shock to us. It reinforced our view that this country needed our tutelage and guidance. After all, a country that doesn't even realize how great it would be to be ruled by the United States is one that has shown so much ignorance that really proves it needs our help. (laughs) It speaks poorly of them, we feel. Yeah. (laughs) And what you described there... I feel like it has sort of echoes of many modern wars, and I, I am not the first person to, to pick that out, but how novel was this kind of a war in American history when it was fought? Because it was 1898. How really new of a kind of conflict was this for the United States? I find this as the real dramatic turning point in the history of the United States when it comes to our, our role in the world. You can argue that the development of American empire had three stages or phases. The first one was what you might call continental empire. We take over North America, and that involved oppressing the Indians and uh, clearing out, taking over two-thirds of Mexico, uh, and establishing our hegemony in what is now the continental United States. The second phase went from continental empire to overseas empire, And then later on, after World War II, we went on to the uh, phase of global empire. But the real crucial moment came right around 1898, because at that point, the United States had fulfilled what we were told was its manifest destiny. Manifest destiny meant it's the destiny of European Americans to fill up North America. In 1890, the Census Bureau announced that this had been accomplished. There was no more frontier in America. So this gave Americans a decisive and profound choice. What do we do now? So we have now filled up North America. Do we continue expanding? After all, you could argue America's been expanding ever since the Pilgrims moved out of Plymouth. Or having now reached our geographical limits, 
do we stop and turn inward and try to build a more just society at home instead of trying to conquer countries uh, overseas? So this right. was the debate that broke out, and that was the subject of it. All the time that I had studied this era, it was always clear to me that that this was an important moment, that when we first decided we're not satisfied with being in North America, we're going to take over Cuba, we're going to take over Guam, we're going to take over the Philippines, and we're going to start casting our eyes all around the world. But what I had not realized, and what is really at the center of this book, is that this decision was not just taken easily. It wasn't considered a matter of course or just something natural. In mm -hmm. fact, the opposite was true. The entire United States erupted in an enormous debate over whether this was a good idea or not. Every leading political and intellectual figure in America took part in this debate. It was on the front pages of newspapers day after day. The United States Senate debated it for 32 days in a row. And that debate yeah, wow. is at the center of my book. What strikes me about it so much, and I kept coming back to this as I was doing my research, is how contemporary that debate from 120 years ago is. Every issue that we talk about, whether we should be in Nicaragua or Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan, it all goes back to this original debate. And that's why my emotion at finally finishing the book was envy. I really envy the Americans <laughs> of that period because they had the great debate that I wish we would have today. For people who don't know, the war lasted about four months in 1898. And then after the Treaty of Paris uh, signed with Spain, the U.S. took over Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. Separately within that process, it took Hawaii as well. Was the average person excited about all this? Because it does seem like a lot of the decisions from the top were grounded in a lot of polling and trips across the country to try to gauge whether the public was into it. There's always a war fever. Jingoism is very big, especially when you're winning. And uh, Americans yeah. are a very warlike nation. Uh, we love to think that our soldiers are uh, kicking butt on the battlefield. And William Randolph Hearst made sure that it seemed that way. I do think that attitudes towards that war changed even during the year of 1898. At the beginning, everybody right. was excited. But then a couple of things happened. First of all, it turned out that we were not going to let Cuba become independent, as we promised when yeah. we went in and, and sent our troops there. Actually, we weren't going to withdraw and allow the Cubans to run their own country. We were going to take it over. Then it became clear that we were also going to take this country on the far side of the earth, the Philippines, that we knew nothing about. So this is where a number of uh, Americans changed their minds. Even Mark Twain, for example, had written a letter to one of his friends uh, saying that he thought the Cuban War was being started, uh, uh, that the U.S. was entering the Cuban War with such fantastic uh, goals, and there never had been a war entered into with more justice. But soon afterward, he changed his mind when he saw that the war had been launched under false pretenses. We also had in the Philippines the experience of very bitter warfare, which was essentially in the form of massacres of local civilians. Uh, we had our first big yeah. torture scandal in the Philippines. So I think it was probably a good thing for the imperialists that that Treaty of Paris 
was debated uh, quite early after the war began. So February 1899 was in less than a year before we even started this whole process. So a lot of the enthusiasm was still there. It was starting to wane, but it hadn't waned enough to stop the passage of that treaty. I think if the treaty under which we took control of these islands had would have been postponed maybe by one year mm-hmm. and everything uh, that was happening in Cuba and the Philippines would have been clearer, uh, maybe it would have been rejected. And I think that's one reason why uh, Roosevelt and Lodge and others were so eager to get that treaty ratified as quickly as possible. Well, with any foreign treaty, the Senate has to approve it after it's negotiated. This treaty was brought to the Senate. It said the U.S. will pay $20 million to take over all these islands from Spain. And the treaty only passed by one vote. And then you also describe in the book that many of the imperialists in this case are Republicans and those who are not are Democrats, although that, that that's fuzzy too. But um, one of the leading Democrats, William Jennings Bryan, probably had influence over several senators and for some reason he decided to back the treaty and that seemed to pass it like if just him or just any legislator had turned the other way uh, maybe it doesn't go through it's incredible you're absolutely right and i didn't know that story it doesn't really come up clearly in other histories of this episode but then i could trace as i went through this thing on a day-by-day basis how brian who was a great anti-imperialist Democratic leader who had run for president against uh, McKinley, essentially assured the passage of this treaty for various political reasons. Maybe he didn't want to look like he had blocked American takeovers of foreign lands because he was planning to run for president again. But uh, when you think about that and you think about the fact that, as you point out, this uh, treaty by which we became an overseas imperial power was passed with just one vote more than the required two-thirds majority, and that the Supreme Court only approved it by a five-to-four margin, it does leave you with a lot of uh, fantasies you can spin out about how America would have been different. So I consider that 32-day debate in the U.S. Senate over that Treaty of Paris by which we took over these islands to be the most important debate in the history of the U.S. Congress, even more important than the debate over slavery, because the debate over slavery only affected what was going to happen inside the United States. This vote affected the future history of the entire world. And I can tell you from reading foreign newspapers during my during the uh, that were published during the period I'm writing about that uh, the whole world was following it intently. Ambassadors in Washington were sending back reports every day about the different uh, speeches that had been made and how many senators were now said to be on one side or the other. So it was clear, even at the time, that the Senate was making a decision that was going to shape world history, and it sure turned out that way. If nothing else, we have a lot of those treaties' decisions still in place. I think, like, Puerto Rico is still a U.S. territory, and, and there's a lot of issues with that. And also, as you said, like, Americans don't hear about that Philippine-American war that happened right after the, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it, like, the American-Cuban-Philippine war. That's, that's not Spanish-American. Very We're good. done. Because that conflict against Spain's agents in those islands only lasted a few months, but then... From 1899 into 1902, there was active fighting between the Philippines and the U.S., and then there was ongoing resistance all the way until 1913. Much of the resistance was from uh, the Moro, uh, primarily Muslim communities in the Philippines, 
And a lot of the crackdown against it included tortures like what was called the water cure, which is uh, waterboarding. Uh, I don't know if Americans know that there was that being done to a Muslim population by the U.S. over 100 years ago, right? That, that sounds like a George W. Bush era kind of thing. It's truly remarkable. Uh, they did have in the Philippines something that was called the water cure. It was a torture where you would uh, hold someone down, force water down their throat until their stomachs expanded grotesquely. Then you could jump on their stomachs, and many <sighs> people were killed this way or tormented this way. So um, this helped set off the uh, torture scandal that actually wound up being whitewashed in an investigation in the U.S. Congress, but did touch the hearts of Americans. It was the first time that Americans had really been confronted with the fact of how brutal American soldiers could be when you sent them overseas. As I read about this water cure, and I understood that we were still practicing it or practicing it again, I began to wonder, so where did it come from? How, where, how do we get there? Yeah. Where's it, who, who came up with this? And sure enough, I, I researched the history of what we now call waterboarding. So it started as a torture during the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, and then that famously when, gentle organization. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's where we're getting our ideas for how to deal with incarcerated people. So uh, it started in the Spanish Inquisition. Then when Spanish soldiers took over the Philippines, they brought it over there and they taught it to their own Filipino allies. Then flash forward a few centuries, the Spanish are gone. The Americans come to the Philippines and they meet Filipinos who teach it to them. And we learned it so indirectly from the Spanish, then we brought it back and used it again against uh, Muslim prisoners uh, more than a century later. The history of even our excesses in the Middle East in many ways has its roots back in this first torture scandal and this first American adventure overseas. That's, that's astounding. What happened in the Spanish-American War was really a process in the minds of Americans. The first reason Americans got excited about it was that we read in the yellow press, like William Randolph Hearst's newspaper, uh, that the Spaniards were brutalizing people in Cuba. And we should go and intervene in order to save those people from brutalization. This always works with Americans. Whenever a president wants to invade a country for any reason, you just need to say we're going in to help the poor, brutalized people. Americans right. are very compassionate. We, we hate the idea that anybody's suffering anywhere. And we have this idea that if we invade, uh, everything will get better. So... That's what motivated us to become involved in the first place, certainly among the masses. It was the idea of humanitarianism. Then, before long, during the course of 1898, the war changed. It transformed itself from a war aimed to liberate Cuba to a war aiming to keep Cuba under our control and also to take another country on the other side of the world, which no American had ever heard of, which was the Philippine Islands. Yeah. So. Because the war wound up being about something very different than it was when it started, the nation broke out into this great debate. It's really interesting to look back and wonder, could it have been possible that we would have decided, actually, that's not what America's about. We're not supposed to be conquering other countries. You know, there had never been a country that had once been a colony that had then gone out and taken colonies. Right. Uh, it's so fascinating that it, it almost feels like they templated what the country would be from then on 
by through their, uh, as you write about, extremely close votes and and debates uh, over what we would do. There were Senate votes here that came down to a single vote or a vice presidential tie break. There are five to four Supreme Court decisions. Like how how close did this uh, debate get in terms of uh, not fighting the war? It seems like, but whether to uh, keep all the islands. So this debate really split the country and you had all these great political and economic and cultural figures taking sides. The fact that many of these votes were so close did reflect uh, a very divided country. One of the things I found fascinating in doing this research is that when the senators were making their speeches in favor or against the idea of American empire, Uh Uh, not only were their speeches brilliant, I mean, even the bad guys were so smart in those days and so uh, rich in their historical knowledge. But in addition to that, newspapers all across the country would reprint the entire texts of these speeches. So the next day, you could be sitting out in Nebraska and opening up your paper and seeing a full page inside of the different senators, what they had said on this side of the debate and on that side. So not only was this a a debate that shaped uh, America's future for all time, it was also a great civic lesson for all Americans. Another thing we don't get much of anymore. (laughs) Yeah, as I was reading, I was curious because today I feel like we feel we have a relatively novel situation where every Trump rally or every uh, standoff and shutdown in Congress is televised to everyone. So whoever's watching it sees every word of it. But it seems like a lot of the news and a lot of the developments in this war, it probably felt like a pretty breakneck pace of news, even only being disseminated in print at that time. That's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting that Hearst had a tremendous insight into what became the mass press in America. And actually, we're seeing direct echoes of it right now. So uh, Hearst was given this newspaper by his father. They, he was from San Francisco originally. The father yeah. had supposedly won this uh, newspaper in a poker game. Just for people who don't know a little background on it's it's William Randolph first, and then that was the paper, the New York, I think the Journal. I journal. Want to say. Journal. Yes. New York Journal. Yeah. So William Randolph Hearst was the founder of what we call yellow journalism. His father was a mining tycoon and gave him this newspaper as a kind of a way to get him out of San Francisco. And sure enough, he he came to New York, and he started trying to figure out how am I going to build this newspaper into uh, a giant in town, since it only was a relatively small competitor at that time. So he started Uh with the formula that uh, usually works in the mass press, a lot of stories about scandals and adultery and the little boy falls in the well and uh, family troubles and political upheaval. But after a while, those stories start to run together. People get a little tired of them. And Hearst had this brilliant insight, which we still follow today. If you want people to buy a newspaper every day, or let's say today, if you want them to click on every day, you need to have what we call a running story, a story that keeps unfolding every day, not just one story like the bridge collapses and that's it. And Hearst realized that the best running story of all is war. He thought if he could just get American soldiers involved in any war anywhere, he could then build up 
episodes and make heroes and traitors and battles. And with his uh, fabulous uh, on their reporting staff, he could make anything. So he intentionally set out to get the United States involved in a war in order to build up his newspaper circulation. It That's worked amazing. magnificently. <laughs> it did, And yeah. uh, that is what helped motivate us to get into this war. And, and we are seeing these same tropes today. Was it Hearst's paper? The headline was, how do you like the journal's war? Uh, that was a thing. I, I wonder Indeed. if I wonder if modern media is accidentally following that kind of a path or or conscious of it. Well, they're certainly following it. Yeah. <laughs> when we were talking before about what people remember from this war, from history class, if there's a couple of things they remember, one of them is probably the explosion of the battleship Maine in uh, Havana Harbor. They probably don't remember specifically it's February 1898. That seems to be the inciting thing that those papers latched onto. Was that actually a ship that was attacked? That's sort of a long-running historical mystery, right? We're trying to figure that out. Remember the Maine yes. was the battle charge in the Spanish-American War. And actually, I think we continue to use that for many decades as a, an example of how we are not going to tolerate anybody attacking us. We're going to get back at you. Yeah. So sure enough, as the uh, Cuban Revolution was gathering steam and Cuban patriots were rebelling against uh, Spanish rule, the United States sent a warship to Havana Harbor to kind of sit offshore and serve as what was then called a gunboat calling card. So it means just uh, oh, so I noticed that Uncle Sam is watching. <laughs> um, at this time in Washington, people like Theodore Roosevelt and his best friend Henry Cabot Lodge, and of course William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper publisher, were desperate to uh, push America into that war uh, in Cuba. So when the Maine blew up, killing over 200 American sailors. Uh, this was a spectacular uh, gift to those who wanted to promote war with Cuba. Right. Uh, the very next day's edition of the New York Journal is an absolute masterpiece of journalistic mendacity. <laughs> uh, the headline read, Sinking of the Maine was the work of an enemy, and many subheadlines. And the, the newspaper front page is dominated by a drawing that actually shows the main sitting at rest and underneath the waterline you can see the mines that the Spanish have attached to the hull of the ship and the cords Whoa. that are leading it back to the detonators on shore so the Spaniards <laughs> only have to push a button and the and the ship blows up. Oh, it's well, like Wiley Coyote. Course, <laughs> you're right. Well, this, this attack uh, naturally enraged Americans and wiped away any possibility that we could allow the Cubans to win their war themselves, which we didn't want because then they would be in charge of their own country. So outrage at the sinking of the Maine was a big fact in, uh, in getting this war going, getting the United States into it. Yeah. It wasn't until about 70 years later <laughs> that the U.S. Navy finally convened a serious inquiry into what happened to the Maine. The commander of that inquiry, the director, was uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover, a very famous naval officer, father of the nuclear navy, they used to call him. Anyway, the Rickover investigation showed, without a doubt, that the main had blown up by accident because the furnace had been built in a place right next to the room where they stored all the ordnance. Even wow. at that time, 
there was criticism of the official account. We had a leading expert on naval munitions at the U.S. Naval, naval Academy quoted at that time in an article I saw saying, there is no torpedo in existence that can cause the kind of damage that was caused to the USS Maine. But that was not an argument that was convenient at the time. Essentially, an episode was manufactured a Spanish attack yeah. on an American ship, which never happened, and that played a decisive role, sort of like uh, Saddam Hussein's decision to uh, stockpile all those chemical and nuclear and biological weapons was used many years later. In the book, it's so astonishing. The modern version would be people who wanted to get into Iraq no matter what, but back then it was people who wanted to get into Cuba no matter what. They were so excited to do that. You, you cite a letter from Henry Cabot Lodge to a friend of his the month before the Maine exploded, and he wrote to him, there may be an explosion any day in Cuba which would settle a great many things. End quote. Borderline feels like a threat. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would be a great one for conspiracy theorists. Yeah. I mean, he actually used the word explosion. Uh, but I do think that when we sent the Maine there, people like Lodge thought this is this is the beginning. If we're doing this, we're going to follow it through, and, and we're going to land troops there. I don't yeah. know if they could have imagined that this would have happened. There was a conscious plan to be sure that the Cuban Revolution did not succeed with Cubans only overthrowing Spanish rule, because that would mean that the Cuban revolutionaries would impose their own program on Cuba. What was that program? Well, one piece of it was there should be a limit on how much land foreigners are allowed to own in Cuba. Most of the big plantations in Cuba were owned by big American corporations. It was the idea of the Cubans that those plantations could be cut up and given as small farms to poor, starving peasants. We didn't want that. We were also afraid that the Cubans were going to impose tariffs so that they could promote manufacturing at home in Cuba by charging extra duties on imported goods. 90% of their imported goods came from the United States. So we didn't want the Cubans to take over Cuba. And when we saw them getting close to overthrowing the Spanish, we decided it was time for us to intervene, always with the argument that we're not doing it for ourselves. In fact, we're sacrificing ourselves only to help the poor, suffering Cubans. Right. It's just, we're just too nice. And, and you meant, we've mentioned Henry Cabot Lodge a few times. Uh, your book does a wonderful job talking about Theodore Roosevelt's role in this and Mark Twain's role in it. They're both sort of uh, featured in the, the title and the cover. And then also, I w I'm sort of amazed how many people that the average American's probably never heard of were critical to the decisions here and also critical to the whole process of it. And it seems like Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a Massachusetts senator at the time, basically made Theodore Roosevelt the president? Am I going too far there? It seems like he did. No, I think he, he, uh, he understood that Roosevelt was the horse that he could ride to national power. Lodge yeah. was a, an, a kind of arrogant New England aristocrat who had nothing but contempt for ordinary people, and he didn't even want to be the kind of person who would run for president, and certainly his manner would have made that impossible. But when he saw Roosevelt, he understood that Roosevelt had the kind of 
charisma that would uh, make him the ideal messenger for the imperial idea that Lodge had spent years developing. And how much of an outlier was Lodge? Were there a lot of people with his ideas, or did he kind of push these in in a way that was uh, remarkable and won a lot of people over? I think there was always a strain in American life that our destiny was providential and it was global. That wasn't necessarily the only strain or the dominant strain. I think you can trace it all the way back to 1630 when John Winthrop made a speech that many of us studied in high school. (laughs) And he said to his pilgrim brothers or Puritan brothers, we shall be as a city upon a hill and the eyes of all people are upon us. So what did he mean by that? Did he mean our job is to go out into a sinful world and redeem it and make it good and godly? Or did he mean the opposite, which is, we're going to build up a virtuous society here on North American soil, and if other countries admire what we're doing, maybe they'll copy it, but it's not up to us to go out and push it. We never answered that question. We're still arguing about it. And and I was amazed to learn just how early that approach of we need to go everywhere else started. Like I, I had really thought this was the beginning of it with the Spanish-American War. In many ways it was, but you pick out in the book that William Seward, who died in 1872, he, uh, while he was in Lincoln's cabinet and, and in other parts of his life, was saying that the U.S. should take over Hawaii, Mexico, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Virgin Islands, Canada, Greenland, and Iceland. He was like, we should just go get all that. And that's astounding. That That's a pretty ambitious guy. It's remarkable that, first of all, we would think that that was uh, good for us, but also that we would think it was good for them. Yeah, especially uh, Iceland. That- that's very random. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, you have to wonder how much appreciation for Icelandic culture and yeah. history went into that kind of a, a decision. There are countries out there that have been around like 10 times longer than the United States and have developed long cultures and long histories, and they're not waiting to be told uh, what to do. They have their own paths as nations. And it's, it's only this uh, can-do mentality that sometimes tells Americans we, we not only can cross the continent and invent electricity and uh, airplanes, but we can go into any country and crash in, get rid of whatever we don't like there, and when we leave, it'll be just the most fantastic place you'll be living just like Switzerland. Yeah, we, we're like one of those hosts of a home fixer-upper show or something. You know, we just got to roll in with, with a clipboard. Support for today's show comes from Fallout 76, which is, that's a game I'm going to be playing, folks. I don't know if you've seen my Twitter account, but my avatar, first of all, it's an illustration of me. It's very, very fun. It's by at Smookan. I'll I'll link them. They're great. But also, it is me waving in a t-shirt, and the t-shirt is a New California Republic t-shirt that is from Fallout New Vegas, because I'm an enormous fan of this franchise. It's really, really cool. It's also by the people who make the Elder Scrolls franchise, which is also great. If you know Skyrim, you get it. You're with it. Well, Fallout 76 is by Bethesda Game Studios. They created Skyrim and Fallout 4, and Fallout 76 is an online prequel to Fallout 4 and some of those other games, and every surviving human is going to be a real person. No NPCs here. We've got people that you can interact with online. You can work together or not to survive, because under the threat of nuclear annihilation, you'll experience the largest, most dynamic world ever created in the Fallout universe. 
It's set on Reclamation Day in 2102. That is not history yet. That's a thing you'll find out about in the game. Not in real life. Hopefully. Let's hope. 25 years after the first bombs fall, you and your fellow vault dwellers, chosen from the nation's best and brightest, emerge into post-nuclear America. And so you can play solo or together as you explore, quest, build, and triumph against the Wasteland's greatest threats. Fallout 76 will be available worldwide on Wednesday, November 14th. Pre-order now at participating retailers and play the beta, Games Play Best, on Xbox One. You know, there are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through or make you wait for the right candidates to apply to your job. That is not smart. Uh, here's something that is smart. Going to ZipRecruiter.com cracked to hire the right person. Because ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Isn't that nice? Something, somebody doing something for you? Taking care of it? Well, its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. You don't have to sort through the wrong resumes or like wait for that magic person with all the skills to come. ZipRecruiter will find them. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. What do you mean number one, Al? Well, that rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. So a lot of people count on ZipRecruiter and it works for them. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at its exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One thing I do want to look at closely is the insular cases. Because as we think about the Spanish-American War, we're thinking about a thing that we are still living with the results of in many ways. Uh, and one of the biggest paramount ones is that places like Puerto Rico and Guam are territories of the United States, but also not totally in the U.S. It's amazing that a couple of Supreme Court cases in 1901 have a lot to do with that. You're right. Those uh, were the so-called insular cases, insular meaning island. They had to do with islands, Puerto Rico in particular, yeah. but applied to other American territories. So here we are for the first time in our history seizing land in other parts of the world. And the question immediately came up, because the anti-imperialists brought it up, well, if we're ruling them, then it means the Constitution is in force in all those places, which means you have to have free speech and you have to have free elections and you have to have all the protections that uh, are uh, guaranteed in the Constitution. However, if you had those, colonialism would be impossible. You can't have free speech and free press, and at the same time trying to impose your will on an unwilling people. These cases came before the Supreme Court, and the question was, essentially, does the Constitution follow the flag? Where the flag goes right. up, does the Constitution also follow? And the answer in a five to four vote was no. Yeah. You can rule a country, but you don't have to give the people any rights. That was absolutely crucial, because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to go in and occupy any country. So uh, that close Supreme Court decision, you're absolutely right, does shape uh, our policy, not just toward our territories, but toward the rest of the world right now. We had never faced this question, what ha happens if we rule a foreign land? The, the f founding fathers would have been aghast at the right. very idea. So they didn't address this at all. And in fact, one of the arguments that the anti-imperialists used to use was that uh, the Constitution says explicitly that any powers not given to the government in this document are reserved to the people. You don't have any powers except those that are given in this Constitution. And in this Constitution, there is nothing 
that empowers the U.S. government to take over territories far away on the other side of the world. So that was another factor in this Supreme Court clash. And indeed, in the majority decision, uh, one of the justices did say that a reason to rule that uh, the Constitution didn't apply in territories we seized is that if we did, American empire would be impossible. So he wasn't only referring uh, wow. to law, he was referring to political reality. And that's a great lesson about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court made this decision in 1901, and Downs v. Bedwell was one of the key ones. In the book, you pick out that it was eight of the nine justices involved a couple years earlier in Plessy v. Ferguson, which was a key case that uh, implemented segregation in the country. Uh, You're right. So th there's a, a logical parallel. If you, as a Supreme Court justice, would vote for the idea that certain Americans don't have the same rights as certain other Americans, yeah. then it's an easy step to go and say, and certain people that we rule in other countries also don't have rights. Once you've decided that people ruled by the U.S. government can have a variety of different rights depending on who they are, uh, then you've opened up the door to all sorts of unequal treatment. Yeah, and then and that makes this Downs v. Bedwell decision and these insular cases that treat places like Puerto Rico as uh, not under the Constitution. How how are those still precedent? It's incredible. Like they've been on the books for over a century. We've had all kinds of courts of various political alignments, and it's still somehow law. It's incredible. And, uh, yeah, you can see it uh, right down to today. I mean, uh, look at Guantanamo Prison in Cuba. So that's an area that's yes. under the administrative control of the United States. Why does the Constitution not apply there? Because of what happened in the insular cases that were brought about by the Spanish-American War more than 100 years ago. Yeah, it's astounding. In terms of kind of a next step to take. It seems like there has been some recent groundswell, and I think it happens from time to time, to make Puerto Rico a state or to try to change how these things are handled, in particular because it seems like Puerto Rico maybe got less hurricane aid than uh, states did. What can people do with their vote and with their, with their activism if they want to change any of this? Well, I think it's interesting to see that the Puerto Rico example has had an effect not just in the question of whether Puerto Rico should be a state or whether it should be a territory or whether it should be independent. But it's also informed the view of many people who come out of Puerto Rico. And I'm thinking in particular of this very interesting young woman who's on her way to Congress from New York City, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes. So she has a Puerto Rican background. And although she's uncomfortable speaking about foreign affairs, and I don't think she's immersed herself in many global political issues, you can tell from her comments that she has the consciousness of coming from a colonized people. And right. this is something that will inform her view of all of American foreign policy. So putting aside the question of what it actually a role in Puerto Rico means for the future of Puerto Rico, it has informed a whole generation of people who look up at the way Puerto Rico is being governed uh, and then use that as a prism to see how people in other parts of the world must react to American occupation and intervention. So uh, I'm hoping that the experience of understanding the U.S. role in Puerto Rico could inform a group of uh, political leaders uh, who realize that yeah. trying to impose your will on other people over the long run creates frustrations is not good for people on either side. Yeah. As far as um, our American perspective on these other countries and, and who they are and what they are, like, 
Today we have Google and we have TV and we have all these things. How much did the average American in 1898 uh, know about particularly the Philippines, but even just the rest of the world in general? Well, I'm going to say that there's maybe a two-part answer to that. On the one sure. hand, anything, anything you want to know about the Philippines, as you say, you can go on the computer and make yourself an expert in an hour. Whereas uh, when we took over the Philippines, there had never been a single book published ever in the United States about the Philippines. Nothing. Oh, wow. Is we that knew right? more about the dark side of the moon <laughs> than we knew about the Philippines. However, I will say this. Newspapers at that time did focus a good deal on the U.S. relationship with Europe. And if you wanted to know, which we considered to be the only part of the world that was worth knowing about anyway. Right. So you did have a class of people that was well-informed about what was happening in Europe and European diplomacy. And I'd add one other thing. You know, I uh, spent so much time reading the uh, record of that congressional debate it is so fascinating to read these brilliant orators expound on the history of empires and what makes countries great and what leads to countries' downfalls. And they have such rich references to antiquity. You're always hearing about Pliny the Elder and the Third <laughs> Peloponnesian War, things you'd never even dream yeah. of discussing with a U.S. senator today. The, spe the speeches sort of sound like a Roman Senate at times. It's like, oh, you guys know Cicero? <laughs> Not it even. sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so I was curious at uh, why there was so much deep knowledge among senators about particularly ancient Rome, but antiquity in general. I, I learned from my research that the famous book by Gibbon, The uh, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is multi-volume and considered one of the greatest histories ever written in the English language, was something like uh, required reading for any educated person. And wow. you can tell from the speeches in the Senate that so many of them were immersed in the details of what happened. Whenever there was someone who tried to defect from the coalition on one side or another, he would be accused of mounting a Catiline conspiracy. Everybody knew what this <laughs> meant. I didn't know what it meant. I had to look it up and find out, yes, there was a, there was a Roman senator named Catiline, and he tried to rebel. But this was so widely known then. So at least... Our political leaders and our intellectual elite had a deep grounding in the history of empires and how they rose and fell. And regardless of what side they came down on when it came to debating this question, they're basing their debates and their arguments on history and knowledge, not as today on the belief that either we don't need to know what lessons to learn from history or we're so unique History has no lessons to teach us at all, which is a, definitely a recipe for disaster for any country. <laughs> Agreed. I think of people talking about politics today and saying that it is momentous and extremely important at a turning point, and they're often told that they're hysterical or that they're overreacting. Did people saying at that time about the Spanish-American War that it was momentous, were they told that they were hysterical and, and, and out of line? 1898 was the year when the United States changed more dramatically than any single year in our history. I think at the beginning of that year, Americans were pretty satisfied. The economy was going fairly well. Domestic tranquility seemed secure. We didn't crave any other territories. There were no real movements saying that America should seize lands in other parts of the world. 
But by the end of that year, or even by the middle of that year, the whole country was caught up in a tremendous frenzy. So I think that uh, there was an understanding among Americans and among American political and intellectual leaders that the country was at a major turning point. Wow, yeah. For example, compare this to the period after the end of the Cold War, around uh, 1990, 91, 92, 93. I don't think there was this sense that the United States had some important choices to make. On the contrary, we thought the war, everything's over now. Everything's been decided. So we yeah. can push NATO right up onto uh, Russia's borders. Nobody's going to mind. Um, if there's one bad actor in some place like Iraq, we'll just get rid of him. We're in charge now. We never stop to think the cycles of history will continue to happen. So we happen to be on top right now, but maybe we should be doing things to secure our long-term security rather than taking advantage of the fact that we have our feet on everybody else's neck right now and imagine that they're never going to get up again and they're never going to remember what we did to them. So I don't think we did realize in the early 90s that we had some crucial decisions to make that were going to shape our national future. In 1898, we did. And that's why there was such tremendous attention focused on this debate. You know, all of my books are voyages of discovery. I'm always looking for some story that is hugely important, but that for whatever reason has fallen out of history. So uh, for me, the greatest discovery in writing this book was that this debate ever happened. I don't think most Americans are aware of it. I certainly wasn't myself that the whole country was caught up in a debate over the exact issues we're talking about now. And that's what really excited me about trying to rescue this lost episode from history and present it in a new book. It is remarkable to realize that like living in a U.S. that has military bases across the entire world and we'll we'll footnote in the episode just information about that. That's been normal my entire life and the lives of my parents too. And and it's something that a decision was made at some point about. And it was during this little war that is probably not in the first five wars an American would list about their country. Not just the Spanish-American War, but I would say uh, the the fact that the U.S. fought a war in the Philippines is almost completely unknown. And this was a a savage war. Literally hundreds of thousands of people were killed by American soldiers, almost all of them civilians. It soaked Asian nationalism in ways that ultimately led to the Chinese Revolution, the Vietnam Revolution, events in Korea. It had a profound effect in Asia. But we forgot immediately that it ever happened. And and let me tell you one little episode that shows you the difference in how we perceive these. For sure. Just about a year and a half ago, you might remember it was a one-day news story when the president of the Philippines went on some kind of a rant, and he talked about how he didn't want to be partners with the United States anymore. He didn't like the United States. And he was shouting about how we've had enough. President Duterte? Yes, President Duterte. I noticed when looking at a uh, report of this in a non-American news outlet, the photo of Duterte was different from the photo that I'd seen in America. In the American press, you just see him in his rage, shouting. But in the press that I saw, a, a story that I saw from the Philippines, I saw the whole picture. And what he was doing is not only shouting, but in his other hand, he was holding a large photograph. And he was pointing at this photograph 
as he was explaining why Filipinos don't want to be friends with the United States and have big problems with the United States. When you look at that photograph, it's a picture of a bunch of American Marines standing over a pit full of dead children and women that they've just shot in the Philippines. And this was a particular massacre that happened in, I believe, 1908. So oh, a historical here, one. This was not a, a yeah, recent event. Wow. Here is an example of how American security relationships in the world right now today are being shaped by events that happened over a hundred years ago. It should be a piece of advice for us to realize, don't give other countries now those kind of pictures and those kinds of reasons to continue hating us for another hundred years. We didn't even get that message in the United States that he was angry because of a particular thing. We thought he was angry because he's a crazy maniac, which is how we portray most critics of the United States, but yeah. he actually had a reason based in history and it's based in a historical episode that almost no Americans are aware even happened. In Duterte's case, like he, he is a crazy maniac and then also has this real historical event to draw on, right? Like he's, he, there are other things about him that are awful and then this historical thing really happened and he can wave the picture around. Yeah. I mean, when you want to stoke up nationalism, you always want to point out the sins of others. In our innocence. I mean, this is classic American, but other countries do the same thing. We, we never hurt anybody. Yes. Everybody's out there against us. I mean, this is the national narrative of just about every country in the world. And so Duterte definitely is using that. Putting aside his own political orientation, the fact that any leader of the Philippines would still be shouting right. about the episodes that happened during that war shows you that although the United States forgets about our interventions in other countries, the people who live in those countries do not forget. These memories burn and fester in their hearts and their minds and their souls, and that shapes their attitude over generations. Why is it so difficult to uh, sort of marshal not even just public opinion, but also a political opposition to this kind of imperialism, right? Like, is it is it just a bug of... There's a quote in the book from Henry Cabot Lodge in 1899 where the horrible things going on in the war are being debated, and he says, I vote with the army that wears the uniform and carries the flag of my country. When the enemy has yielded and the war is over, we can discuss other matters, end quote. Is that sort of the, the bug in the system, that once a war like this is being prosecuted, there's some element of patriotism that prevents questioning it? I think that's a part of it. Leaders and governments have always used the argument, uh, while our people are in the field, you got to support them. Actually, I can remember this as a kid during the Vietnam War. You were told that all, all the time. You're stabbing yeah. the soldiers in the back by not supporting them, by being against the war. But I don't think that's the only reason. There's uh, something in the American spirit that tells us we are a martial people and we have to win all the time. We don't compromise. We don't like really diplomacy. Americans don't like to understand things. We like to <laughs> do things. And that's what an army does for you. We don't want to talk. We'll just go over there and crush them. And then they'll have to do what we want. And in the long run, they're going to find out that it was good. In the meantime, we might have to kill a lot of the people that are misinformed and think we're doing a bad thing. So I do think that there's a martial spirit in the United States that tells us that we know what's best for the world. Then when we yeah. get caught in these long conflicts like Afghanistan, in which we're now in year 17, even presidents who realize that the war is 100% lost and cannot be won, 
which is widely understood in our military now, no president wants to get out. You can't be the one who admits it. You have to let some other president be the one who says, you know, we lost the war. We can't achieve our goals. So it's considered better to keep our soldiers over there, bleed our economy, bleed our young men and women, rather than take the political risk of facing reality and saying, we're not going to reach our goals in Afghanistan even if we stay there for 100 years, so why not leave now? Well, and I'm glad you bring up Vietnam, too, because it seems like both with the Spanish-American War and that war, a lot of the public was against it by a certain point, but then it was just a struggle to get a candidate against it. In the book, you talk about how William Jennings Bryan, who, if you listeners remember, he blew it with the treaty. He then was made the uh, opposition candidate in the 1900 presidential election, but insisted on a um, monetary policy involving silver uh, along with gold. Uh, we'll, we'll just, I think we'll just kind of footnote that. There's a lot of detail there. Basically, he was so insistent on specific economic policies and had also been the person that people know blew the treaty. They ended up with a presidential election of McKinley, the guy running it, versus Bryan, the guy who was failing to stop it. And then Vietnam, somehow we got a similar thing with Nixon and Humphrey being both relatively pro-war and the only candidates when we were in Vietnam. I shouldn't say somehow because there was an RFK assassination in there. But I don't, I don't know how that keeps happening. It's very strange. You're right. And I'm looking forward to our next presidential election with that same kind of dread. Uh, oh, yeah. Now I'm seeing that uh, even so progressives, for example, are supposed to be really angry uh, at Trump for trying to uh, defuse the crisis in North Korea. We're supposed to say, uh, oh, terrible. He's dealing with the dictator. But I thought we were the ones that were in favor of reducing tensions. The Democrats are so eager to be attacking Trump that they've embraced a lot of this liberal hegemony ideology, which progressives are always supposed to be against. So I'm fearing that we're going to have an election in which you're not again going to see a sharp differentiation on the question of foreign wars. You know, the closest we've come to it recently was Donald Trump, who during his campaign made some noises. He made saying that uh, Afghanistan war was a crazy thing to be involved in, and we'd spent trillions in the Middle East and got nothing from it. So if you had wanted to believe that there was some positive hope in the Trump election, there were those straws. He then abandoned all of those ideas. But I hope fervently that we get a candidate in this election, in the next presidential election, who is going to take on this issue of how our endless foreign wars are the greatest uh, danger to our own security at home and internationally. Toward the end of the book, you take a a broader view of pretty much all of American history between the Spanish-American War and now. And one, one very interesting thing you say is that anti-imperialism is at its heart conservative. And because then you progress on to pick out that among the few anti-imperial presidents we've had, one was Obama in his later terms, but another were the group of Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, a bunch of conservative Republicans immediately after World War I. Why is that so rare? Why is that such a hard thing to uh, get in a president? The conservative idea is government should be doing less and shouldn't meddle in people's lives. Unfortunately, what we now have in our conservative movement is that ideology applied to America, but the opposite 
applied to the rest of the world. Right. <laughs> so don't give any people health care or support for housing or education in America, but abroad spend trillions trying to change societies. It, there's a great disconnect there. But actually, it's conservative prudence that would argue for a more restrained foreign policy. It's liberal utopianism and the idea that we can change the whole world and there won't be diseases and the warlords will fade away. That's an idea that traditionally has been a liberal idea. So to me, a true conservative is one who doesn't think that he has the answer to everybody's problems, and that should apply not just in the United States, but if you really wanted to be a consistent conservative, you should apply that to the rest of the world. Even in these midterms, this will come out right before it. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe someday we'll discover a conservative who's interested in it. Someday. If we can only discover a few progressives that are interested in it, that would be a start. We, we've got a few. <laughs> this is a small kernel. We just need to build on it. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Stephen Kinzer for exploring the entire 20th century and another couple centuries that led to it. Isn't that interesting? History is a process. How about that? And speaking of a process, I have been in the process of assembling an excellent set of food notes for you. It includes those uh, voting resources I mentioned before. Again, the election's very soon. I hope you're already ready, but if you're not, maybe that helps. We've also got Stephen's fantastic book. I cannot recommend it enough. One more time, that is The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. We are also linking to all kinds of details about the Spanish-American War. That is a conflict that I hope we laid enough groundwork for you if you don't know much about it, but if you felt lost at any point, there's links there that I think will be very helpful. Um, there's also a few stories that we didn't quite get to that are just fascinating on their own. Stephen's book and, and my own just interest in American history are both focus quite a bit on Carl Schurz, and I hope that's a person you'll get to know because he is one of the more fascinating people ever. He was essentially Theodore Roosevelt's opponent in the 1898 election for New York governor that sparked Roosevelt's uh, true rise along with Henry Cabot Lodge pulling strings behind the scenes. Schurz was also a German freedom fighter, a diplomat, a Civil War general, a U.S. senator, a U.S. presidential cabinet member. He did so much work to help build the country, yet very few people know who he is. There is a park named after him in New York City. It's one of the few like landmarks at all to Carl Schurz. And I had a friend once say, let's meet in Carl Schurz Park. And I freaked out because I was like, I love Carl Schurz. This is so exciting. And they thought I was excited about Charles Schultz Park, right? Like I, w I thought it was the guy who did Peanuts. And don't get me wrong, very on brand for me. But both those guys are great. And you should know about the one you probably know much less about, the 1800s political figure. There's also some extra links about our wonderful guest, Stephen Kinzer. It was great to have him. You know what else is great? Chicago Falcon. That is a song by the Budos Band. That is our theme music for the show. Our episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a place that will soon be full of that little New York Times arrow that tells you how a, how a race is going, you know, and then you just keep watching it, even though it's like zero out of one billion precincts are in, but you're like, maybe it'll move anyway. Maybe it'll just do its thing. Either way, my Twitter account will not have those arrows. It is at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on Instagram at Alex Schmitztagram and on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.
Support for today's show comes from Fallout 76. Bethesda Game Studios, the award-winning creators of Skyrim and Fallout 4, welcome you to Fallout 76, the online prequel where every surviving human is a real person. Work together or not to survive, Fallout 76 will be available worldwide on Wednesday, November 14th. Pre-order now at participating retailers and play the beta, Games Play Best, on Xbox One. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.